0: You're listening to the Is This Odd, Dr. Todd program from Los Angeles Magazine Studios, the show where you can get all your medical questions answered without an office visit. Please welcome comedy writer Dimitri Pappas and family medicine physician, Dr. Todd Spector. Hello and welcome to another episode of Is This Odd, Dr. Todd? I am Dimitri, of course. I have here with me Dr. Todd because it wouldn't be Is This Odd, Dr. Todd without him. Hello, Dr. Todd.
1: Hello there, Dimitri. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Yeah, you
0: look well. And uh, I'm going to let everybody know that one of the reasons I think you look well, and this is my personal diagnosis, is because you were out of town. You were out of the country on a little vacation.
1: I was. I was. I was like on some rest and relaxation and trying to get my head straight and uh, ready to get back to business, which I am now.
0: That's exactly what you need from your doctor is for him to have his head straight. The last thing I need is you all <laughs> cloudy and not feeling good yourself. So um, out of the country, I'm not going gonna... to need the breaks. <laughs> exactly. Well, listen, saving lives is exhausting. <laughs> I, ma- I imagine I haven't, but. Yeah. So I'm not going to give any personal details, but you did go to Mexico. Is that correct? Yes. 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 And let me ask you this. Um what was the biggest fear you had? I'm going to ask you a few questions of my own before we get sure. to the listener questions. What sure. was the biggest fear you had in traveling? Was it like the flight? Was it people on the flight? Was it being in a foreign country? You know, what, what, from a doctor's point of view and your own personal point of view, what, what scared you the most?
1: That's a Well, I've traveled quite a bit in my life, so I don't have a lot of fear about traveling in terms of flights and airports and this and that. I think in, you know, I think in general right now, probably with, with everything that's going on in our world, I think the prospect of being far from home and my kids is a little anxiety provoking for me um, mm. with traveling, just, you know, if uh, something were to happen here, you know, in our country or in our town, you know, just being far away, I think that anxiety is something I probably share with a lot of people right now of just um, uncertainty, And, um, it was actually, uh, it was actually nice to have a little bit of a break from that. Um, it doesn't, you know, the people where we were didn't seem to be nearly as concerned with it going on in the world as we were. Um, and it was actually just nice to have it not be the conversation of every, 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 the topic of every conversation.
0: Yeah. I bet. Now a couple, what's the worst thing you ate while you were down there?
1: Um, well, whether get this is a good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> I do think that the street food in Mexico is just fascinating and the extent of it and the variety of it. So <laughs> I have been, every time I've gone to Mexico, my whole life, I've eaten a lot of the street food there. And I don't know if that's why I typically have a pretty good immune system. <laughs> and that I'm exposed oh. to a lot of, uh, different viruses and bacteria. And I never have really gotten travelers diarrhea, but I know a lot of people do. And I would I would like to credit my adventurous eating habits in foreign countries to that. But I would say, I would say some of the meals my wife documented me eating on the street in Mexico would probably raise an eyebrow in some of the gastrointestinal and infectious disease communities.
0: Well I look forward to hearing about that um, some <laughs> other time, I think. Now that's interesting though, would you ever prescribe so, you know, for people that have like low immune systems, would you ever prescribe Mexican street food, that sounds like something you're you're telling people to go out and take on a to, to level up.
1: You know, I have not prescribed that, but it is not, <laughs> yeah. you know, one of the really pre- preeminent thinkers in allergy and immunology had noticed that there has been this huge uptick in food allergies in kids. And one of the things that she has recommended is if you really want your kid to have a low likelihood of having severe food allergies, then every month, you should take them to a farm and let them play in the dirt for the first year of life, just for a day or two. Let them pick up stuff, put it in their mouth. The likelihood that they're going to have allergies is very few. And her hypothesis is we started to over sanitize our kids' world. So maybe you can extrapolate that to adults and say, you know, go to foreign countries and eat street food. And, you know, barring any unusual disasters, you'll probably have a lower likelihood of intolerance in the future. It's interesting.
0: Um, now I noticed that, uh, we're going to get to the listener question in a second, but I did notice, you know, I know you don't like to talk about your patients, especially since some of them are celebrities, but I did notice that <laughs> Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak was also in Mexico and he was admitted to a hospital for uh vertigo. Now, did you have to tend to Steve Wozniak? And is that under his general plan or is that something <laughs> that's an additional fee because it's out of pocket?
1: No. Um, I actually did read about that when I was there and, uh, could not disclose my relationship to or not to <laughs> Steve Wozniak, but I was surprised that he needed be admitted for vertigo. He must have felt pretty badly.
0: Well, you don't have to talk about your relationship with him, but let me just ask you this. Do you have an iPhone or um, do you have an I iPhone?
1: Do, I do have an okay. iPhone and okay. Apple products. Yeah. Say no more. So, okay. okay. <laughs> we,
0: we can we can connect those dots. All right. I think we should get right into the listener questions. All right. You ready? Yep. All right. We got some good ones today. Dear Dr. Todd, I have never been able to have an orgasm. At first, I thought it was just who I was with. But now, while I haven't been with tons of men, I have been with enough and had enough of a variety of sex. Okay. To where I feel like I should have experienced at least one. Could there be a medical reason for this?
1: Thanks, J.L. It's initials J.L. (laughs) That's a good one. Um, I'm sorry, going back to the question, did the person say how old? Did she say how old she was? She
0: did not. But let's try and let's try and break this down a little bit. She says she's never been able to. So I'm guessing she's not super young. Yeah, Um, Yeah, not 20s. Right. At first, I thought it was just who I was with. So you figure that's one relationship. But now while I haven't been with tons of men, I have been with enough and had enough of a variety of sex. So uh, I know this is where Dr. Todd usually says, oh, I need more information on that. Um, (laughs) Tell me more about that. (laughs) I'm guessing probably if I had to guess, I would say what, maybe 30s?
1: Okay. Okay. Well, so I think for JL, there's two things. One, the first is that there's what we call primary anorgasmia and secondary anorgasmia. So primary would be she's never had an orgasm, which it sounds like is the case for her. Then there's secondary meaning that at some point in that's their when life, when you finish second, what's that?
0: I said that's when you finish second. <laughs>
1: exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Nobody exactly. wants you know, primary out of a guy. Go ahead, men sorry. are men are often aspiring to secondary anorgasmia. <laughs> um. So, but so hers is she's primary. She's never had an orgasm or at least that she knows of. So. It is possible. Um, most of most of the time, primary anorgasmia is actually a psychiatric diagnosis, meaning there's something there's a barrier psychologically to her being able to have an orgasm, as opposed to a pathologic structural problem. That would be very unusual. There's, you know, I I I. Not knowing what medication she's on or if she's on any medications, there are certainly certain classes of medications that can cause this difficulty. So, for instance, if this is a girl who have been on medications in her teenage years for depression or anxiety, some of those medications, and if she's been maintained on them, can actually cause difficulty with orgasm. And some of those effects may even go on after you stop the medications. Um, but... Assuming that's not the case, I think there's a lot that goes into this question, which is great. Um, I would really want to explore with her the type of sexual stimulation she's been receiving either from herself or from others, because I think there's a common misconception that the only way to have an orgasm is through penetration. And that is typically not the case for women, but that is often what you see in pornography. (laughs)
0: well apparently you see in pornography um what i would like to see you brought up a good question here though because it says i've been with enough and had enough variety of sex but she said she's never been able to have one so the question i would then ask is has she been able to have one by herself through masturbation right so because then she would know what one is and she would know that she's not getting it that's kind of a key question here i think
1: I think so. So I think, you know, that Dimitri, there you go, the, in the the history is often the answer. So I think that, you know, for her and I, and sometimes we do see this with teenagers and young adults whose exposure to sexuality is through pornography that what they're seeing these wild and crazy orgasms with things squirting out of people in 50 different directions and men with, you know, enormous penises, their perceptions of what sex is is actually not quite w- it doesn't really go with reality. I think we just got a little tip as to what kind of porn Dr. Todd likes.
0: (laughs) Just kidding. I have no proof that he watches it. He merely talks about stuff. And trust me, I talk about stuff that I have no experience with all the time. So um,
1: pornography. Have you been to Pompeii? No. Yeah. I was surprised as were my kids and many of the people who go to Pompeii, the amount of pornography that was present in that society it was everywhere really and i think it's not too dissimilar to our current days i think there was a probably a 2000 year lapse of lack of pornography but i think pornography is a big part of human culture and i do and think for all- kids it's a big part of their sexual education and i and so i think with this woman jail i do think it's i think a little more Information from her, I'd, I would be curious if she was able to have an orgasm with herself, if she was able to use and an, have an orgasm using an assistive device, otherwise known as a vibrator. Um, And then I would probably want to know a little bit about medications she was on. And then maybe a little bit of psychologic history or trauma around sex would be not, you know, that that, those would be places I would start with this person. But I would say typically most people are physiologically capable of having orgasms. Okay.
0: Well, see, okay, JL. So I guess the question is you can always reach back out to us if you like, or I think Dr. Todd has brought up some, some great things to think about. Maybe you can talk to um, your doctor. Um, but again, if you don't feel comfortable like, with that, then we are certainly the place to come uh, where you can feel comfortable with any, uh, any questions. Now, uh, Pompeii is the one. So you're saying there was a lot of pornography in Pompeii. Isn't that the one that with the giant eruption that covered the whole city?
1: Exactly. Okay. It, Moving, on end.
0: <laughs> Moving on to the next question. Yes. Dr. Todd, have you ever had patients ask you your opinion on their bodies? I've heard this happens. Thanks, Jesse.
1: Yes, Jesse, all the time. Really? All the time. All the time. All the time. You mean like because they say
0: like you're an expert, like you've seen a lot of bodies as a doctor that they want to know how does mine look? Like
1: is it Really? Yeah. Yeah, they're like it, am I fat? Am I thin? Do I have enough musculature? Do I not? Am I going to get taller? Yes. People But are, do
0: they ask like like advice like do you think do you think um, my my boobs are, are nice? Do they ask like, like, does it ever get to like, where you're like, I don't know if this is a flirtation or if this is strictly because I have experience seeing bodies?
1: Right. Well, I definitely think that I'm the first stop for a lot of people when they're thinking of a cosmetic surgery. So there's a lot of discussion of bodies in that conversation. So, you know, for instance, you know, women might come in and ask about, Breast size and shape and symmetry. Um, Men are uh, preoccupied a lot of times with body fat, gynecomastia, which is male breast development, and uh, penile size. So there's lots of conversations with people around those areas. And then, of course, you know, there's the facial cosmetics like lips and eyes and chins and all of that type of stuff. So lots of questions about body and, um, you know, it, it is actually hard because, of course, I'm going to have my own personal preferences as would anybody. Um, but so I try and keep it to what's the range of normal or abnormal, so to speak. There's nothing really abnormal occasionally. Right. Because
0: that. this is a this is the medical opinion as as close as you can keep it. Everything you, you give has to be because you could very easily with not saying you would, but it, it could be very easy to accidentally cross a line in that dialogue, right?
1: Yes. Yes. It's v- it, it, you really could. And it's it's it is delicate because we all, I mean, as human beings, have our preferences. That all people asked you. Have people asked you,
0: hmm? have people ask you like what type of what type of clothing, what type of bathing suit should I wear? That like do they ask you like, does it get like that in depth? I, I'm you can tell my voice has changed, but I'm fascinated by
1: this. Well, I I have a particular perspective on body image and what now is body positivity. And I I think that people spend a lot of time worrying about how they look as opposed to embracing how they look. Um, and I, I encourage people to feel good as, as best they can physically and emotionally. And typically when people feel good emotionally and physically, they're less concerned with how they look. Um, it's it is and and so when i I try and get people to really focus on good habits and feeling good emotionally, and then they tend to be much less concerned with how they look. the The concern with how people appear is much stronger, I find in people who are struggling emotionally. Mm-hmm. So it's a great question. Um, and there's a yeah. lot to it. And and personally, I think that that's like the, some of the fascinating stuff in medicine is those conversations about what is this really about? Or tell yeah. me more about that, as you've heard me say.
0: That's, you know what, Dr. Todd, that is a very, and I know I, a lot of sarcasm comes from me. I, that is a very, um, you know, and I, I know you personally, and I know your family. So that is a very classy answer. And I think that is a very responsible answer. And I'm actually, you know, I, I want to give you props. I feel like it's that type of stuff, this the stuff that you give out there besides just the, you know, be careful, see a doctor on this stuff like that, I think is why Los Angeles Magazine gives us this platform because you, you, you're a very educated guy, but the stuff you just, you just shared is, is beyond the education you would get from medical school. And and I want to give you a a quick shout out on that. And then I'm going to go back to being a dick.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Dimitri. I appreciate it. Well, that's, sure. I think that is the most fascinating part of being a doctor. The kind of doctor I am is the exposure to human beings and, and their complexities and, uh, inability to change. Mm. Um,
0: now I would also like to point out that now that we've been at dinner parties and I've seen people have asked you questions and you're like, Oh, let's not, I don't want to, I always thought it was like, I'm a doctor, I don't want to give away free advice, but you must be exhausted from the amount of questions that you answer during the day that you don't want to talk about stuff like give medical advice or talk about anything besides nonsense
1: at a party. My my family is always very frustrated with me because they're like, you give medical advice all day long, like, why won't you tell us? And, And I'm like, I just need a break. Wait, you're leaving
0: your, you're with, hold on a second. You're leaving your family to hang, hung out to dry on medical advice?
1: No, it's more not with, not, not with what I um, think are, yeah. imp- but more just sort of, a, you know. <laughs>
0: you're, not, you're, you're not, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut this off because you're trying to stammer your way out of this one. I think we got the truth <laughs> on that one.
1: No, I, I try and take good care of them too. Okay.
0: All right, next question. Hi, Dr. Todd. I was wondering, are scented candles bad for you? I keep hearing they are, but it almost seems like anything can be bad for you at one point or another, and depending on who you ask. So I want a Dr. Todd expert opinion. Oh, that's nice. Is there really a harm in scented candles? And if they are bad, like, how bad and in what way? Thanks. Dana, sounds like she wants a certain answer, but I know you're gonna give it to us straight. What's up? Yeah,
1: I well, I don't know if they're particularly harmful for everybody, but um, essentially what's happening is you're combusting or burning the wax and it's releasing particles into the air, which then your olfactory system, your nose, and sometimes your taste buds are detecting and those can trigger a response especially if you have allergies or asthma. So there are certainly all of us have, you know, met people and they they come to us and they say, oh, I have a new boyfriend or a girlfriend. And I've, you know, I've never had such bad allergies in my life. Do you think I'm allergic to this new person? Well, we always ask, well, tell me about, have you been spending time at their house? And what's going on in their house? Do they have animals? Do they have carpets? Are they burning scented candles? Those are a
0: great excuse to get out of a relationship. I'm allergic to you. My doctor said I'm allergic to you.
1: Yeah. You're not allergic to the person. You're allergic to their candle. What was the person's name? Who asked this? Dana. Dana. Yeah. So I would say to Dana that probably like most things in moderation, scented candles are okay. But if you're finding that they're bothering you or you're sniffling or sneezing, probably better to, to open a window and enjoy the fresh sense of the outdoors.
0: I think you're probably my guess is you're giving Dana what she wanted to hear because she didn't once mention in that question that she was having problems is that she heard so I'm I'm guessing that Dana really enjoys scented candles and like everyone else Dana keeps seeing things on TikTok and on Instagram where they're like uh here's a, here's an expert telling you why you should never light a scented candle again why you should never wear socks uh, <laughs> you know inside the house what there's there's like and I think that's what she's saying she's like it seems like there's almost anything can be bad for you at one point depending on who you ask. So I think that's kind of where she was coming from. And I think you just made her day. I think think that's right. As long as
1: I, I wouldn't say you should be burning them constantly at all times around you. I think in moderation, they're fine. And if you're having any negative effects, you should probably stop. And I, and it probably depends a little bit on the type of candle you're burning or what you're burning. But I don't think that there's anything categorically, it's not like cigarette smoking, which we know is categorically bad for you.
0: Okay, good. So, yeah, because a lot of people find scented candles r- soothing or relaxing. So, it yeah. probably helps them in a positive way as well. Yeah. Obviously, there's some out there like uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's goop has very odd c- claim to be scented candles. and So, I think, you know, Which, definitely. Uh, I don't. I don't remember. Dmitri, <laughs> she, I can't tell you off the top of my head, but it, she does have something like vagina scented candles or something like uh-huh. that, I believe. And I know there are some out there that are like, they say they're Harry Styles scented candles. I don't know if that's a joke. But um, nor do I know what Harry Styles smells like. So I think you could probably get away with selling that and never really have to prove it.
1: Right. But. It does remind me I've seen something on Instagram recently, which is this chef who like watches these cooking videos of these cooks and, and just as talks about why they wouldn't work or how ghasty is that people <laughs> are putting this out as real information. So maybe maybe the don't wear socks and never light a scented candle <laughs> might fall into that might just be a little bit too much.
0: I think so. All right, next question. Dear Dr. Todd, my husband and I are about to welcome our first baby. We are at odds over what to do in the delivery room during the birth. I want a fun, lively delivery with family and friends, and he wants just the two of us and doctors, obviously, to make it more intimate. Is there any scientific research about the effects the atmosphere during the delivery can have on a baby? Thanks, Julie. Boy, that's a... that went the other way from what I thought it was going to be, but go ahead.
1: Well, I, it sounds like Julie's a first-time mom. <laughs> and Why do you say it, that? It, well, Dimitri, you have a number of kids that I know of. Yes. And the Dimitri, <laughs> That's right. The Dimitri, the delivery room is not it's a It's just real, the
0: floor. Thank you, Dr. Todd.
1: <laughs> it's not a place for fun and games, as far as I know. Right. And I think a lot of people, first-time parents, have expectations of what they want this delivery to be like. So what I usually tell people is that the most important thing in a delivery room is a healthy mom and a healthy baby. And let's reverse engineer from there. So yeah. let's figure out what exactly you prioritize below that. And if someone says, well, what do you think is the safest, most effective way to deliver a baby? I would say- the safest, <laughs> Not friends and family. Not friends and family hooting and hollering, holding up signs. <laughs> no. I think it probably, I think probably in a delivery room, people don't love this answer, but I am a doctor in a hospital where you have access to specialists and um, specially trained nurses and doctors. And, and if something goes sideways, it can be remedied pretty quickly. Now, there are birthing centers that are adjacent to hospitals that are not quite as clinical where they have baths and jacuzzis and places, you know, for women to walk around. I mean, you know, from the beginning of time, humans have been having babies. And they weren't always in hospital, but you have to know at those times, the rates of morbidity and mortality were significantly higher. The rates of birth injuries like cerebral palsy and um, nerve injuries, et cetera, were much higher. So I I would tell people that like just they really have to think about what their priorities are in this delivery. Mm -hmm. And are there I'm sure that if I don't know, maybe if it's a very positive environment, I can't imagine that that's very. Bad if it's very stressful. Maybe that's not quite as good. But I think ultimately we want healthy mom and healthy baby as the number one priority.
0: For sure. And I'm going to be on. Like I said, I have four kids, and I was in the I was in the room for all four of them for their birth. Um, I I can't even fathom that. Correct me if I'm wrong. That the doctors in the hospital would allow that many many people in the room anyway. So I have I not Julie's seen that.
1: I will tell you that when I was in medical school and we were attending deliveries for the first time, and there was a bunch of people in the room who were medically, not medically trained, medical trainees, and one of the trainees who was with me fell over, hit his head, got a subdural hematoma, which is a bleed, an intracranial bleed, and wound up in the intensive care unit for a week. So... You know, you have to be careful who you're inviting to this delivery. You <laughs> That's right. You don't want to have like two patients all of a sudden. Yeah. Right. Um, so I, th- this isn't all fun and games in the delivery room. It's a pretty hectic place if you haven't been there before. Yeah. I
0: was administered smelling salts at one point. And I was like, and I, it did everything that I had to do to stay on my feet. Cause I did not want to like, I did not want that image of being in a bed next to my wife while she was holding the baby. or, or the hospital. Yeah. Right. Um, but I will say it's, um, you know, there was one time there, during one of the, the births of my kids where I was, I think it was maybe the first, the second one. And I was kind of not ready. And the doctor was like, come here, come in and and hold her leg. And I was like completely thrown off. Like I was like, I'm in a button down. I like I wasn't prepared. I was, just, I literally have it was like, I have like a fifth row seat. This was like being at a at a at a basketball game and having LeBron turn. Of course, I'd have LeBron turn and go, "Hey, come on, we need you to help out." I was like, "I am, I am not, I am not supposed to be hands on here." Um, but it was, it was interesting. Well,
1: I do think that the delivery room nurses and doctors and um, are so used to being in there, and it's such an exciting place for them um, that they want everyone to to join in. Um, but you're right. I think that's a great analogy. Not everybody's ready for. Similarly to LeBron tossing you the ball and saying, "We need a yeah. three from me right now."
0: Exactly. Um, but and one real quick before we move on to the last question, uh, I also want to say, Julie, you, you know, I don't know if this was kind of tongue in cheek or the 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 thing about friends and family, or whatever. But as Dr. Todd mentioned, you know, we had a moment during one of our uh, the birth of one of our kids where there was five seconds where we didn't know what was happening and it was the longest five seconds of my life. So, you know, I think everybody needs to keep that kind of stuff in mind too. Uh, you know, have all the parties you want afterward, you know, when you, when you're home and this and that, but I don't know, that's just, that's just my non-medical, uh, but as a father advice. All right. So good. Sounds good. Yeah. Okay. Last question. Dr. Todd, I saw an article on Buzzfeed where people were claiming to have had the best orgasm of their lives when they drank coffee before sex. Is that a real thing? Also, are there other things you could do to enhance climax? Thanks, Michelle.
1: Coffee. Well, Michelle, I drink a lot of coffee. Do you have a lot of sex? I try. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sorry, go ahead. I don't know. Uh, I don't know if there's a correlation. Caffeine is typically a vasoconstrictor. Um, and typically with sex, we want vasodilation. In fact, people with migraines, um, often will drink coffee to help their migraines because it'll stop the vasospasm and cause some vasoconstriction. What do you mean by vasoconstriction? What is that? Vascular. So like ah, you know, the veins are, all have got musculature it. in them and they can open and close. And, um, but, uh, I, I don't know about, listen, I like having coffee before everything. So I can imagine right that having coffee before sex would be really enjoyable. Does it increase it? I increase your level of excitement or arousal or pleasure. I don't know. There are, you know, certainly, um, you know, things I think, I think it's a lot of, uh, there are a lot of people who will say that, you know, taking, um, cannabis or THC really enhances sexual pleasure. Um, I, there's a lot of, um, Some of the uh, empathetic drugs like uh, MDMA, um, people say really enhance sexual activity. Um, Not that I'm endorsing that, but it's just to say that it is actually possible that there are things out there that do increase and improve sexual activity. I think, you know, the, the classic that people, that's legal and that people do all the time is people have a glass of wine and they'll relax or they'll have a drink and they'll relax and then they find sex more enjoyable. Part of that is because they're less inhibited and they're um, because alcohol is a natural disinhibitor. Mm. Now, there's other ways to become disinhibited other than alcohol, but it takes a little Mm. bit more. It takes trust and it takes um, communication. And sometimes people don't have the patience for that. And that's why you'll see college kids, you know, go to a bar, get drunk to meet people because they're anxious, or they don't have the um, the the trust necessarily in another human being. So they're going to be like, "I'm just going to suspend that by using some alcohol," and then the, you know. But I don't know if it increases pleasure. I, I don't. Right. Cut to
0: Dr. Todd being like, "Honey, I'm on my way home. I'm just swinging by Starbucks tonight. You want <laughs> yeah. anything? A couple
1: of lattes. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting a quadruple. I'll be home in fifteen minutes. <laughs> I heard something great from Dimitri. Just stand by."
0: <laughs> I'm not the sleeping
1: show. tonight. I'm going to be up to about four. Of them. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but meanwhile, she falls asleep and you're just laying there. Right. Um, all right. Well, that was the final question. Uh, I just want to run down. This is a little something I like to call Dr. Todd's Rex, which also go with RX and prescriptions today. <laughs> um, first one was, uh, is it possible that, you know, is there a problem, medical problem that she can't orgasm? Doctor says there are things that could inhibit it, but, you know, figure it out because, uh, there's a lot of questions that go into that, but you should be able to, to do it. Depends on if you can do it with yourself and with others, ask an opinion on the body. Yes. Apparently people ask him their opinion. So if you want to know how you look in a bathing suit, feel good about yourself, but Dr. Todd's willing to help scented candles. They're not as bad for you as, uh, maybe Instagram and, and um, TikTok say, so if you like them, enjoy them in moderation, Birthroom room etiquette, no parties, keep it to maybe a one, two person guest list, And coffee orgasm, he doesn't know. uh, There's no medical explanation for that, but he's willing to give it a try and he thinks
1: you should too. Yeah, maybe we can come back to that next week.
0: Yes. Oh, Dr. Todd's going to do a little take-home research. All right. Well, uh, listen, we ask ourselves this question all the time. Is this odd, Dr. Todd? Yes, it is. There's a lot of oddity out there, a lot of odd questions, but we welcome them. And we thank you guys for sending them in because we think you know, if you have a question, I guarantee other people have the same question. And, and what better way to, to talk about it and get answers from this, this very uh, interesting, educated man in Dr. Todd. Dr. Todd, thank you so much.
1: You got it, Dimitri. Looking forward to talking next.
0: Yeah. And I want to thank Los Angeles Magazine, like I mentioned, for giving us the platform and uh, keep the questions coming and keep listening. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Is This Odd? Dr. Todd program from Los Angeles Magazine Studios. If you have any medical questions and want to hear from Dr. Todd, be sure to email podcasts at lamag.com.